The following is Russ Unger's talk, Design Ops Skunk Works, Shoes for the Cobbler's Children, from the 2015 Information Architecture Summit. So, Skunk Works. I came about this because many years ago, I got into these leadership positions where I had to figure out how to be a leader and be a billable person. I feel like I should pose for you. Does anybody have that issue where you're the manager, like you've got a whole bunch of people reporting to you and you're supposed to work on projects? And it's the best, right? It's the best. You sleep really well at night and you only work 40 hours a week. Yeah, I was a hot mess of FUBAR when I was trying to pull this off the first couple of times. When I was trying to figure out how to be a manager and be somebody who is on projects, billable. Now, a bunch of years after the fact, I see that I was kind of a martyr. Definitely, I was a giant idiot. I can tell by some of the, yeah, none of you are surprised that I was an idiot. It's okay, but it's really hard when you're learning to be a leader and somebody tells you you've got to be utilized, you've got to be close to 100%, all this other stuff you're going to do as a manager is on your own time. I've got friends that are going through it now. In fact, it's kind of really messy, but these cubicles remind me an awful lot of something else that happened in our history, right? If this digital work starts to make you feel like you're in a factory again, you're doing this thing, you're, here we go, I'm being billable, I'm being billable, I'm being billable, I should go home, uh-oh. I've got to figure out how to manage people, how to give them time off, how to hire somebody, how to, heaven forbid, let someone go. And in this day and age, everybody's watching, so people know if you're billable or not. And that's scary. That's petrifying. Fear, by the way, is a fantastic motivator. For people like me, I gain weight, I lose hair, and that has nothing to do with my age. And frankly, it just sucks that you have to donate your time to doing a job that you're supposed to be able to do. I'm somebody who is eager for approval. I like it if you all like me. And so it made me a really, really easy mark. In fact, I've just made a lot of mistakes, friends. In those days, I said I was highly billable, very close to 100%. I remember this manager saying that to me. And all I thought was, wow, what the, f what am I doing here? This is horrible. So as I'm walking through all of this and being billable, I remember I kind of felt like maybe this. Doing all of the work, right? Just bouncing around. Maybe trying to further myself be better. Eat the fish. Worry about Laszlo. But sometimes it is just too much. So I do what we all do. I lost my crap, I flamed out. What's really great about this video is if you look, there's somebody all too happy to come and fill in that chair, which is the case in most places. If you don't want to take on the added responsibility of escalating your career at some times, you can be put in those situations. That's just not a lot of fun. To be completely fair, by the way, I'm a whiner, I'm a crybaby. These were all things I could have said no to. It was my own damn fault. And to quote my friend Gabby, she says, never do a shitty job well. <laughs> That's Gabby Hahn, if you don't know who she is, believe me, she's right. And I did a shitty job really, really well, like A-plus work. 
I felt like I didn't have any idea how to lead. I definitely had no idea how to bring a design practice into being. I was short on mentors, and I never felt like there was a level of leadership where I could make decisions or have control. I wasn't sure if I ever wanted to do this again. I found out that there are actually places who don't operate like this. You know, I can say no. I found my no. It's cute when you do. My friend Matthew pointed me to somebody who I learned to love a lot, John Boyd. And when you're trying to right-size yourself, John Boyd's OODA loops are fantastic. Observe, orient, decide, and act. It can be a little tactical, and I got really into this mantra, and that was kind of what I said. I still got a post-it note on my computer. Observe, orient, decide, act. I use this all the time. Matthew said to me, if you like Boyd, you're going to love Kelly Johnson. And everything started to change for me. Kelly Johnson, he was this aeronautical innovator, which if you know anything about Boyd, it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah? He was a systems engineer, and he worked on a lot of airplanes, including this, this bad monster. The first production aircraft to exceed Mach 3, worked on the first fighter that was capable of Mach 2. Ah, he was just, he was pretty badass. And then he worked on this thing called the XP-80. What's really important about this is it was in 1943 and the Army was struggling. The Air Tactical Service Command was having a hard time beating the Germans. The Germans had faster planes and they needed something done quickly or they were afraid they were gonna lose the war. So Kelly grabbed a bunch of these elite engineers and these shop mechanics and he put them to work. They built this large circus tent and they put it behind this plastics factory. And they were told that they had 150 days to deliver a prototype jet fighter capable of enabling pilots to beat the Germans. That's not much time to build a thing that can fly and shoot bullets. They delivered it in 143 days. This was called the XP-80, Lulu Bell. This plane, it flew over 600 miles an hour. He became known as this organizational genius. He could deliver impossible results in impossible time frames. He broke all of these rules. He decided that people telling him he needed to do more with less wasn't always the right thing to do. In fact, he was kind of the ultimate crap umbrella for his team. He knew certain processes and policies would hold his team back, and I think we all are very much aware of those. In fact, the contract for the XP-80 didn't even arrive until four months into the build. If they'd have waited that long, this thing would have never happened. And this tent that they built and they worked in, in fact, he told his team, I believe that he told them they were gonna work six days a week, 12 hours a day for the terminable future to get this thing built. And they put this tent up behind this stinky plastics factory, and that's how they became known as Skunk Works. And Kelly created these 14 rules and practices for his team to be able to get things done. And they were all based on his motto, which was be quick, be quiet, and be on time. Think about that, they were hidden in a tent, they were not seen, people couldn't really do anything, and they beat the hell out of their deadline. So he created these 14 rules and practices. I'm not gonna read them all to you. The 15th one was starve before doing business with the damn Navy. They don't know what the hell they want and will drive you up a wall before they break either your heart or a more exposed part of your anatomy. <laughs> it's a very important rule. And what I did is I looked at these rules and I'm like, wow, these are really great ways to drive forward thinking stuff. If anybody wants to say that word, I think it's on Livia's bingo card. It was interesting, these worked really well for engineering, right? Engineering, they solve something based on knowing the problem, and design's a little bit different, so these rules don't exactly apply to us. In fact, design, we have to understand a problem and a solution, and we do that by creating something and testing it. 
kind of can't do that with airplanes. So I took these 14 rules and I tore them apart a bit and said, which one of these could we apply, ones of these could we apply to what we do as designers? I came up with eight different ones. Most importantly was number eight, which maps to his one rule about the damn Navy, which is don't do work for people who are unappreciative of, nor do they value the design process. Important to map that. These will be online. This is only a 20-minute presentation, so not that I'm making excuses. We just won't have them. What I've uncovered, and I'm just getting into this quite a bit, is that I found three different types of design skunk works projects. If you know of more, tell me. This could be a longer, better presentation, and I'd love to hear more of what people are doing. Somebody mentioned to me the Google Design Sprints, and they may work into here in the future. The first one I uncovered were hackathons. These are intensely collaborative projects. We all are aware of hackathons, right? You get a bunch of people together for two to three days, 24 hours, a weekend, a week, whatever it is, cut them loose to create with a goal in mind. One of the reasons that they work so well is that all the formal business-like management crap is out of the way. If you think about it, managers kind of disappear and let people go do their thing. I don't know the managers actually realize they're doing that. They don't think they realize that, wow, we're letting people go do this stuff, we're not here. I think they're thinking, wow, what a benefit. But I think all of these teams are going, we can form and norm and storm and create really cool stuff. And given that and how we apply these to how we work as designers, I created new hire hackathons. So when people join my team, two to three people, one to two people, we'll create projects. So I've got a listing of things that are quick hits, you know, like something like we need in a project list. So we need a pattern library. We need method cards for shared language or we want to map our process. So I write up cards that talk about the fit, talk about what the project's going to be, really high level objectives, expected and estimated timelines, give a team size, create these cards, prioritize them, then assign them. And then the most important thing, get the hell out of the way. Give these to people, two to three people can work on a project for a couple of weeks. When people join a company, at least companies that I've not figured out onboarding for, they don't have anything to do for those first couple of weeks. They are doing paperwork, they are learning people's names, they are figuring out where the restrooms are, or they're just dinking around on Slack. Again, maybe that's just me, but when you put them to work on these things, you find that you get a bunch of things taken care of that you would have not gotten taken care of in the past. So we're working on method cards now, so we can have shared language across project teams. What, what do product people think? What do designers think? What are these phrases and words that we're using so everybody understands what a journey map is, or you know, what a heuristic analysis or evaluation is? And this allows us to see when people are going through these, who's leading, how they work, things that we're not communicating very well. There's all kinds of benefits from seeing that. The next type of hackathon project are labs. I love labs because there's some really great examples, but labs are like secret locations. I'm not going to say the name of the company that's in California that creates phones and watches. They treat a lot of their projects this way. But when companies start to get large, kind of in the small, medium business stage, they get too big for people to know each other. I think Dunbar's number is 150 human relation, like that you can remember, human relationships. And labs allow people to get away from that. So you'll hear of things like, anybody remember Atari? Like the best? coolest company of my childhood. They had a facility in a World War II era hospital that was about two and a half hours away from where their main offices were. And they put a bunch of engineers there who they found were unhappy, they were kind of unproductive in their corporate environment. And they got them away from all the crap. And what happened was they started creating things like the driving games for Atari. These were like a huge profit stream for Atari. And these same group of people in this lab 
created the Atari 2600. I almost feel like I should ask you to applause this thing, but <laughs> I won't. Being a separate location. <laughs> Thank you, Nolan Bushnell. Being in a separate location keeps people out of the line of firefighting. What I mean by that is they're working on the future. They're not working on the now. They don't have to deal with somebody going, oh, crap, this thing is on fire. Let's get you in here. We all have to work on this. That's kind of keeping them away from what's called the tyranny of now. And that means that you're mortgaging your future to work on the crap that's going wrong today. These folks being two, two and a half hours away could work on things about tomorrow that were going to be revenue streams. Hyatt Labs, I think, Mark, you know about these, right? Hyatt Innovation Labs, they have eight properties that they call lab hotels throughout the world, and four of them are in the United States. In these hotels, they've got seven to nine projects underway at any point in time, and they get to spend no more than 90 days on the projects, and they get to create things that might not happen otherwise. So for example, in Chicago, the Hyatt Regency O'Hare, they have this shuttle that will take people to the hotel from the airport. And what they did is they moved in the ability to check into the hotel there so you get your card and your key to go in when you get on the shuttle and you get off at the hotel, you've already got it. People started feeling like VIPs, so they just walk right on in. They took care of that waiting thing at the airport, so you didn't have to wait when you got in line. And that's kind of cool, so they're able to create those, and if those work, if they stick and people like them, they generate some interest and people can lobby to get those put out enterprise-wide or in different locations. So the benefits of these, right, they keep teams and people away from office bureaucracy, which is smart. They maintain the entrepreneurial spirit. They keep teams protected from daily distractions. And they allow the focus to be on future streams. They avoid that tyranny of now, firefighting stuff. Lastly, my favorite one, I stole this from Fred Beecher, weaponized downtime. Reminds me a lot of hackathons. What these really are is my manager at Burger King said this, and I love this. If you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. So what that means is, let's say your project gets canceled. Let's say a client backs away. Something happens, and you've got a week or two of nothing to do. What do you do besides getting on Minecraft? Again, probably just me. Well, if you take those cards that I was talking about and you create those, you can come up with a whole bunch of different projects. An example of something I've done once was this design system in Axure. I worked for a very large enterprise, and they created a very large design pattern library, but it was all in code, and it was definitely not something that you could access easily if you were a designer who didn't understand Twitter Bootstrap. So I found somebody, a couple of somebodies, and we said, what if we take all of these pieces and put them in action? What if we plus one that and we make it training material so people can download a starter file? It's not just, hey, Russ, give me the save as of your last thing, and we just kind of start to build this thing. What we found is in two to three hours of people's time per week, we got this whole pattern library, an entire website that people could download these pieces from across this global organization. We built it in six months, an entire actual library website to download it, to watch all the training, to match all your fonts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we estimated the actual delivery time with full-time employees would have taken us four months. That's kind of cool. We were able to do this just in nickel and dime time. People were signing up to do it because they had meetings that would get canceled and they could go create a couple of widgets. And that was really cool. And again, the way to set this up is to go just like these pattern libraries, but they don't have to have a two-week time frame or a one-week time frame. They can be longer endeavors that you need to have done to fix your business. These are the lower priority and high impact projects, right? They're not the ones that you need it right away. We didn't depend upon the actual library. We decided it was a really good idea to have it. It generally requires a senior person to lead the effort, and it really requires some really good documentation so that when people roll on or roll off, 
there's continuity built into place. Um, what was really nice about this too is as a global organization, we had people working together in offices that didn't normally see each other. And that was kind of cool because you saw the team starting to coalesce a little bit more. I know that's a lot to take in. Like I said, I'm really just getting started. These are the top three that I'm working through. If you know of more, please come and find me after this. I would love to hear about them. And finally, Kelly's great rules, right? Multiple rules can apply to each of your Skunk Works projects. These slides will be online in a minute, so you can grab those. You can apply this thinking to your regular projects. If you can get people out of the way, you can have a lot more things getting done quicker. The three types of Skunk Works projects that I've identified are hackathons, labs, and weaponized downtime. And thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast from the 2015 IA Summit, subscribe and check out the full collection at library.iasummit.org and on iTunes. The 2015 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by the UIE All You Can Learn Library. The All You Can Learn Library will give you the skills and techniques you need for a competitive design advantage with 24-7 access to experts and UX topics. For more information, visit aycl.uie.com. That's aycl.uie.com. As always, thanks for listening.